0: Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. After a week-long hiatus for the Memorial Day weekend, I hope everybody had a great weekend, we are back with another episode. And for those of you who've been paying attention and following along, we are back for part two of our highly informative and really interesting conversation with... Jaime Kirkendall, and, uh, and welcome, Jaime. Hey, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. So, two weeks ago or so, Jaime, we went kind of through the lead-up to um, the, the Camerina abduction, and I'd like to kind of take you from February 7th forward to um, today. But kind of before we get to, to February 7th, I had a couple of questions in thinking about this. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but um, sometime later in, in 1984 is when Roger Knapp's car was shot up, ostensibly by people working for uh, Felix Gallardo. That was in October of 1984. That's correct. Okay. So that had to have increased kind of the the tension, the, the concern. I mean, how did, how did you all deal with, with that of, you know, somebody's car actually being attacked? Well, it, naturally it, it wasn't, not,
1: we didn't expect that. We did, uh, we, we knew that they, that they, that they were upset with this. I mean, they had, they had shot up, uh, they had, uh, severely wounded an informant that we had working for us. He was, uh, eventually became a paraplegic, uh, but, but it was a, it was a surprise and, and then it, it, uh, raised tensions to another level. We changed the way that we looked at things and then very quickly they moved him and his family out. So, uh. We we lost the, we lost his services. He was a very important part of the the, the office. He was really uh, had a lot of you know he was really experienced and capable investigator. So it, uh, it, it 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 affected a lot of things. It changed it changed uh things changed things drastically. Yes,
0: okay, and then. So December of eighty four or so, you have the incident with the missionaries. How much? How? Um, how aware of that were were you all at the time?
1: Uh actually, almost nothing really. Uh, we I guess we knew it. We knew about it, but
0: that was about it. We, we really didn't uh, have anything to do with it. And am I, mean, I correct you guys the u s had really no role in the investigation surrounding the the disappearance and eventual you know the murder of those four missionaries no absolutely not uh the state Department has in
1: larger offices they have uh, have their own investigators and uh in a place like the consulate they would just take one of the consular officers and assign him or her that duty to coordinate the the investigation with the local authorities and that's what they did in that particular case
0: okay but it certainly wasn't like the your D, your office in Guadalajara was getting updates on the investigation or privy to Insider information from from the Mexican officials. No,
1: absolutely not. Uh, when the other two people uh, disappeared, uh, John Walker and uh, and Rattlet Boy, that happened almost at the same time. That, that that happened just before Kiki was kidnapped, and and uh, and Eve Walker, the the uh, wife of John Walker, she came to Guadalajara and. She went with me several times, uh, wanting us to help them, and and uh, I kept telling her, you know, we're not having any success locating our agent, and uh, you know, we can't we can't help you any more than we're helping ourselves, and it was uh, it was hard it was a hard thing to do to to not be able to. To help her, but uh, we weren't helping ourselves really at that point in time.
0: Okay. So, this might be an an open ended question that's hard to answer, and if it is, I apologize. But I'm just wondering if 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 you can kind of characterize the mood in the office, let's say the day, you know, the morning of, or the days approaching. Uh, Agent Cameron and his disappearance. So, leading up to February seventh, you know, were, were, you, were you tense? Was it, you know, a different feeling that it had been, or had it, you know, was it kind of, this is what we do in Operation Normal? Is is there any way to kind of characterize that?
1: I would say that by that period in time, it was pretty much. It, 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 every day was pretty much normal. We were we were always tense, but it was just just the way things were every day. It's, okay. That has been coming now for oh I don't know a, a year or so. That was the, the the tension had really become just a part of way of life. Really, and we uh, we were as I say as I have said previously. We are not very many, and uh, we had lost. Three of the agents, four of the agents, and and, uh, only recently we got uh, Alan Bachelier moved in, and then uh, Shaggy Waters had come during the summer, and uh, other two agents who had been assigned after Roger Knapp's car got shot up, uh, they uh, realized they weren't uh, that anxious to come on down, so they had uh, renewed, they had re. They had taken away their their
0: request to get transferred. They were coming. Okay, and and you know what you say makes sense to me. Um, and I want to move to now February seventh. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, sometime that morning, uh, didn't Agent Camarena walk to um, a bank or do something similar to that? Um, like I say, on the morning of, of the abduction day.
1: Right. Uh, Kiki had about, a, uh, less than a month to go before he transferred and he'd been selling items, uh, first items that selling a few of them didn't have any, uh, because he didn't to keep from bringing them back to the States and uh he was taking he he did. he walked two two blocks to the main to a main street and then two blocks up to another bank and he was swapping the faceless for dollars. So he he did. He walked four blocks by himself up and back uh without the molesting without any being molested. That was probably around uh I don't know, perhaps 11 o'clock in the morning, morning of the 7th.
0: Then later that day, and again, if I get the... <laughs> I, I know you'll correct me if I get the the, the timeline or the facts wrong, but um, at some point, you and Alan went uh, across the street to the Camelot restaurant, right, to meet with a, a, a confidential informant? Alan... Uh...
1: We wouldn't have normally done this, but uh, Alan was new in the office and didn't didn't, uh, didn't think about it, but he had arranged a meeting with a confidential informant at the Camelot restaurant. And the informant showed up with his wife and a small child, and uh, Alan went to meet with him. And I went across also to introduce myself to... Uh, to be there because Alan intended to pay the informant and um, uh, the rules that required it, that in most cases unless it couldn't be avoided that uh, that all payments to an informant be witnessed by another agent and so uh, that was the reason that I went over there so there would have been the two of us plus uh, the confidential informant, his wife and son, and Alan and uh, while we were there, I contacted the office. It had to be, we didn't have, we didn't have cell phones in those days, so it had to be with a radio. And, and ask asked uh, the office to have uh, Agent Comarina come over with $100, and, which he did. He came over and was there for
0: just a few minutes, went back to the consulate. And just a couple things, just for clarity. So, you and, and Agent Bachelor went over there. Um, what time frame was that approximately? About noon, more or less. Okay. Um, and then again, so people can get a, a visual in their head. Um, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong, but the American consulate is on the corner of Libertad and. Progresso, and if you go kind of southwest caddy corner across the street is what at that time was the Camelot Restaurant, right?
1: That's correct. And the Camelot Restaurant had a open air deck for in front of it, right there, right there at the corner, and and there were tables and chairs on that, and that's where we. That's the important, and that's where we would go after work sometimes
0: and have a few beers. And the Camelot also becomes important as we go through the day um, because you all, at least some of you, parked your cars in front of the Camelot as opposed to using the the consulate um, parking lot, which would be way up, on the other side of of the the consulate.
1: Well, that is correct. But the reason for that was that our parking privileges for everybody in the consulate had been uh, lost about uh, two weeks previous to that time. They had had decided to... uh, I don't recall now whether they were getting ready to remodel the thing, or or just raising the fees. But we had lost our parking privileges there, so we were, we had talked to the to the owner of the Camelot, and he allowed us to park our vehicles in their small parking space.
0: Which again, just a, a, for people's reference, that would be kind of on Libertad Street, um, so on the of the south side of that street, across the street, catty corner from the consulate.
1: That's correct. It, it uh, They had a small parking place there, good enough for about three cars. Uh, and it was, it
0: was set back from the corner a little ways. And um, on February 7th, Your car was parked there, as was Agent Camarena's.
1: Agent Camarena arrived before I did and parked his pickup truck in one of the parking slots. When I arrived, oh, I don't know, fifteen to twenty minutes after him, there was no place for me to park in the in the small parking lot, so I parked directly behind Agent Camarena, blocking his exit.
0: Okay. Um. Let's go back to the day of February 7th again. So you and Agent Camarena were at Camelot. You two go back to the consulate while Agent Bachelier f- finishes up with the uh, the CI and and his family. Is that right? That is correct. And then what do you remember next about that day with respect to Agent Camarena's presence or or lack of that.
1: Well, several times that morning, Agent Camarena was visited by someone, a a Mexican immigration officer named Rojas. That uh, I that Kiki was talking to. I don't think we ever actually made the guy a confidential informant. He was just somebody that Kiki knew that uh, would talk to every now and then. The guy worked at the airport. And uh, the guy visited Kiki that morning. And Kiki explained that he was coming there to try to get any a non-immigrant visa, a visitor's visa for a friend of his, a guy named Jose Luis Gallardo Parra. And uh, maybe I think maybe we had talked about it the day before because we had pretty much decided not to try to recommend the guy. I mean, the guy could could request a visa on his own, but they always felt that uh, a little nudge from from one of us might help. Might help the. Uh, might help him get the visa and I think we had decided not to uh, let the guy not to, to to support that request and I saw Gael Para without knowing what his name was uh, there with uh, with Rojas that morning and uh, I think that uh, what happened was that that, uh, I'm really not certain whether Kiki uh, broke off the thing for the next day or not, but uh, outside of that, we just uh, pretty much did what what we do all day long, uh, read, uh, read, report, talk to informants, plan our, plan our days, and, uh, we had a we had a temporary agent in in the office, Fidel Sanchez, I think his name was, uh, and he and I were planning to go visit uh, a site where Rafael Cato was having a home built. We planned to do that in the afternoon. Um.
0: And so the story, I think, goes that around two p.m. plus or minus, Agent Camarena says that he was supposed to meet his wife for lunch, and he leaves the the consulate. Uh, and and I'm I'm assuming that that you weren't you weren't quite were you, well. Let me just ask that question: Were you there, kind of, when he said, "Hey, I'm going to lunch," and left, or did you find out that he'd left? later on, from somebody else?
1: At uh, more or less around 2.15 or 2.30 or something like that, I uh, left the consulate with Fidel to go and look at this site that an informant had given us the address. And I asked for Kiki, and one of the secretaries said that he just left to go meet his wife for lunch. She didn't say where he was going. I'm not sure he told her. And so, you uh, and I walked across to the consulate. I mean, to the, uh, to the, to the restaurant and uh, got in my car. It was still, I still had Agent Comerano's vehicle blocked. So the two of us got in the car and left. At that time, Agent Comerano's truck could have left,
0: but it uh, stayed And then you had no further contact with him on the day of February seven, right? No one did right. Um, so then, when did you first become aware that something wasn't something was amiss? Well, not
1: since we didn't know where Kiki had gone to meet his wife, and we knew he was leaving in a left at a month. Uh, when Fidel and I uh, returned to the consulate, the, the pickup truck was still there. Went up to the office. Kiki was not in his office, but we didn't really we didn't think that was unusual because uh, he was leaving, and we knew he was, or we knew he had, we were told that he had gone to see his wife. So we thought that he was uh, enjoying himself with his friends and. Uh, more or less celebrating his uh, pending transfer. In fact, Agent uh, Wallace, uh, Shaggy Wallace, and Fidel and I all got in Agent Wallace's car and drove to uh, another hotel to meet with an informant who had arrived the day before, who was there to help us work on. Uh, Against Miguel Felix, uh, we talked to him, planned, made plans to to do to start an investigation and meet again with him the next day. Returned to the consulate uh, after it was already closed. That and, and two of the secretaries were sitting actually sitting on the deck outside the of the Camelot when we got there. Uh, we said hello to them and we got in our vehicles and left.
0: Kiki's pickup truck was still there. But again, no reason at that point in time to think think anything of that. No we reason did, to be suspicious. We didn't think anything of it. We yeah. uh,
1: we we relieved, this is just what I just said that that yep. he was out with his with his uh, wife and friends in celebrating
0: the transfer, the pending transfer. So then the next morning comes, and that's when you realize that something's not right.
1: I received a call from Agent Wallace early mm-hmm. in the morning, and he had just he had been called by Ms. Camarena. To tell him that Agent Camarena had not returned home, that it was very unusual, very out of out of uh, out of character. Agent Wallace called me. I agreed with him. Agent Wallace left his house to go and leave his wife with Mrs. Camarena, and I headed for the office to try to see what I could could find there.
0: Um, this is. Th- I'm not sure how how best to phrase this question, but at what point did you, did you realize that you know that he'd been abducted or that um, or that you know again that something was seriously wrong? Was it at that moment? Was it later that day? You know, kind of how did that unfold? At uh, that moment, really, because he. <coughs>
1: He didn't have a girlfriend, they're, they're, and, and he wasn't the kind of person that, that got, got drunk or anything like that. I mean, if he was missing, something was wrong. That, okay. that, that, that was
0: just out of character. entirely. So, at that point, in your mind, you, you know, you, you kind of have the you have multiple roles at that point. You're you got to be kind of thinking as an investigator. You're thinking as the lead of the office. You're also thinking of uh, your friends missing. Um, kind of how did you process that? And did you start putting together, a, you know, a mental list of places he could be or suspects or, you know, anything like that?
1: Yeah, I would have to agree with everything you said. The the uh, As soon as I got there and realized that, that he wasn't there, that uh, there was nothing to... <clears throat> Nothing readily available to indicate where he might be. I started. I called the office. I called the the different members of the of the office. Asked them all to come in and help. Uh, by that time, agent agent Wallace had dropped his wife off and had and and uh, had arrived at the consulate. And the secretaries began to make phone calls. The other agents began to make phone calls. Uh, we knew that we, go, we were going to have to depend on the, Me- the Mexican Federal Justice of Police to do any physical searches. And so uh, one of the agents went to the office of the MFJP to ask for help. That would have been Alan Vachelier. And then I uh, called uh, my supervisor in Mexico City, Walter White, to advise him that that Kiki was missing. I, we, I did that within thirty minutes of the
0: time I arrived there. Um, and, and again, I, 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 I forgive me for kind of going back to the same question, but um, at at any point did you start putting together in your mind a list of potential suspects or? Things that might have happened. I'm just wondering, you know. I, I, I guess to be to be perfectly open, you know, the the idea is, I think in in most people's minds who weren't there, who've watched, you know, the the TV shows and stuff, you know, you immediately went Carl Quintero. Um, you know, and is that how it worked, or how did it, you know, how did things progress to as you were trying to investigate and and find out where he was
1: well it was it would be wrong to say that rafael Cutter was the primary suspect i would say that if anything it was the primary suspect but it would have been the yellow pellets at that point in time of what what the whole city was full of drug traffickers and those were the ones we had identified there's no telling at that time there was no telling or no no No, no, no other identified suspects, but that didn't mean that that there couldn't have been, you know, there could have been some other one of the drug traffickers in that that city that we hadn't identified. I mean, surely it was easy enough to sit down and make a list of all of the drug traffickers that we knew of, but we could have, it could have been someone else as well, and, you know, I mean, we were waiting, hoping to get a ransom note, although that was, uh, you know, kind of far-fetched, because, but you hope, you hope, you you, you know, you never give up hope. Sure.
0: Um, and, and there's a reason for, for asking about this, but... Did you or someone else kind of start going through? I, I don't know. Um, you know, Agent Cameron, his desk, his address book, if there was anything. I mean, w- was that type of investigation kind of and, and started right away? And you know, again, I, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a. <laughs> I, I'm not in law enforcement, so if I'm, you know, seeming pedantic, I don't. I, I apologize, but I'm just kind of wondering what you started to do at that point in time as far as an investigation.
1: No, there there wouldn't have been anything that we didn't know that agent work was working on. Just, I mean, after all, we were with him the day before and the day before and the day before, and we were all very close. So whatever he was working on, we already knew. Okay. So there, there, you know, there was nothing like that. I mean, we looked at we looked at his at his desk, sure for pieces of paper, and then there was nothing there. And he had uh, there there wouldn't have been anything about the day before
0: that we didn't already know anyway, because we were with him. Right. Okay. And and I just want to ask this one question, just to get it out of the way. Um, and then we can we can talk a little bit more about other about important things. At, at no point in time during this, you know, time right after he's kidnapped and during the investigation, at, at nobody at the DEA said it's the CIA. Oh no! And, and, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> but was there any? Any talk, any thought, any worry that it was the CIA or anybody else at the at the U.S. government?
1: No, and in fact, I don't think at that point in time we felt like it, that it was. Well, you know, we, we you can say that the DFS and the Mexican government were the same thing, and that's not really true because the DFS was was a secret police that wasn't very secret, and they had been completely, if not if not bought bought by the traffickers. I mean, they, they 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 you know they they they. I'm assuming that they did investigations for the for the Mexican government that didn't have anything to do with the drug traffic. Well, we didn't see it that way, but we didn't. You know, we didn't think that the DFS on its own. What uh, picked up Kiki? On the other hand, we didn't know. We didn't know who'd had him.
0: Um, I want to. I want to ask about some more sh- things that happened. Specific things that that happened during the kind of the investigation and and the lead up to um the the bodies being found. Um. But before we kind of walk through that, I wanted to ask you just um, about Mrs. Camarena, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that that I always feel is missing um, from a, a lot of what we've been able to see and read and stuff is the realization that you know it, it, sometimes you forget this is a real person you know, who who had a family and, and he had young children, he had a wife, um, and I'm sure you dealt with her kind of during this period. If you can, I don't even know how you sum it up, but can you characterize, you know, how difficult this time must have been for her?
1: Yes, of course it was. and uh, Jackie Wallace's is- Wife Yolanda helped helped tremendously. She went over there and helped uh, calm her down, and and uh, they obviously exchanged uh, thoughts. They had been they have known each other for years and years, and uh, they were both they had they had spent spent many years as as the as the spouses of uh, of policemen, so they they were not. I shouldn't say it wasn't unexpected, but they knew there were they 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 were well aware there were dangers, and uh, she did have three small children. The smallest one, Eric, didn't even talk yet. But uh, Mika showed a lot of courage. She was a great inspiration to the agents that that showed up and and. In the search, we uh, assigned an agent to to stay inside the house. The MFJP agent, the MFJP, assigned a, a group of agents to be around the house to protect her because no one uh, to protect the family because no one knew exactly what was going to happen. For a while, we didn't even know. For a while, we weren't certain that that's who had taken him, even. But no, no. Mrs. Camarena showed showed uh, a lot of uh, class, a lot of courage. The ambassador uh, Gavin met with 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 uh, Mrs. Camarena, agent Peter Nundes and myself, and uh, to get our feeling about what he should uh, say to the press, and Mika asked him to please make sure that her son, that her father, that her husband would not treated like a number make sure that uh, that his disappearance and if he was found dead made made, made a difference
0: yeah I don't know <laughs> frankly it doesn't happen very often but I'm almost at a loss for words um, so I, you know, we could spend uh, a few hours, I'm sure, talking about the investigation and stuff, and and I think we know that a number of DEA agents went down to Guadalajara and a number of uh, other agents, including FBI agents. But I'd like to to kind of talk about a couple of specific things because I I, I think they they kind of highlight um, continuing issues and things one of them is again sometimes we we tend to forget that um you know someone else was in was also a victim along with agent cameron and that is captain zavala um and and i'm wondering if if you could do two things one if you could just explain again who captain zavala was and then um Talk about the timing of finding out uh, that he had been kidnapped as well, if you could.
1: Alfredo Savala Avila was a pilot for the the Mexican Agricultural uh, Agency, the Department of Agriculture, if you would. He was a former military pilot. He retired from the Army. The Mexican Army didn't have a separate Air Force. And then he got a job flying for the Agricultural Commission. His job mostly was that of a taxi driver. He, uh, Guadalajara was the regional headquarters for the Agricultural Department, and he ferried officials around, and then he did, did, I guess he did errands for them. And uh long before I got there, some other DEA agent had uh had recruited him to help with information about mostly about what was going on at the airport, things like that. He was not involved in the drug traffic or at all at all, anything like that. And uh we had actually uh, used him, rode with him on uh, several occasions to uh, just uh, reconnoiter of different areas of, of uh, Mexico where we had heard that uh, the traffickers were planning marijuana and uh, opium properties. Uh and 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 he also gave us information about the major traffickers that lead, that, used the, that used that used that their aircraft at the Guadalajara airport. The day that that uh, Kiki Kiki was kidnapped on the seventh, we learned about it on the eighth. Sometime during the the Around midnight of the 8th, in order to get any assistance from the State Judicial Police, I had to go and file a missing persons report. And uh, the Consul General graciously accompanied me to the State uh, Judicial Police Headquarters in his vehicle. And while I was there, I received a call, a radio call to call the to to call on the telephone back to the office, which I did and spoke to to Agent uh, Bachelier, who told me that Captain Capitan Salala's family had called, and he talked to one of the sons, who told him that Captain Salala had also been kidnapped on the seventh, and he gave me uh, a, a rundown of the, of the
0: circumstances of that kidnapping. And and again, just for for clarity, um, there's no question that the son was reporting the kidnapping that occurred on the 7th and he was reporting it on the 8th. That is correct. Um, One of the things I find really interesting in in kind of the timeline of things that I don't think a lot of people recognize um, is when you all found out about Lope de Vega. Um, And I think there's a perception... That you, you became aware of Lope de Vega, you know, shortly after the kidnapping. But can you kind of talk about the timing and the circumstances of finding out that he had been taken to eight eight one Lope de Vega?
1: Well, the first thing that happened, positive thing that happened, is that the Comandante Floraventura who was sort of their troubleshooter, trouble was sent up from Mexico City, and he arrested a number of state judicial police officers for their complicity with the drug traffickers and uh, interrogated them. As a matter of fact, during the interrogation, one of the commandantes of the state judicial police passed away. According to them... According to the, to the Mexican government, he had a heart attack. His family dis, 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 uh, rejected that and said he had been tortured to death. But, but during the interrogations of those people, they did not. They all claimed, they all confessed that they had been involved in the, in the, uh, in the kidnappings in one form or another but they gave no addresses. Then, uh, a little later on, Rafael Carlos was located in Costa Rica, brought back to the United States with with, with, uh, three henchmen, and they were interrogated. They did not uh, give an address, even though they confessed to some, to being being, uh, involved in the kidnapping. They did not give an address. And it wasn't until after Ernesto Fonseca was arrested in uh, Puerto Vallarta that the Mexican government gave us the address. That's the first time we knew anything about the address at 81 Lope de Vega. That was probably I don't know a couple of days after Taker's arrest in one, in Puerto and,
0: and that would have been a couple of months after the 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 abduction itself.
1: I don't have the date in front of me, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Um. One of the other incidents that I I, I find interesting. Um. In kind of how everything played out was the, um, which what I think is characterized as the the confrontation at the Guadalajara airport when Carringtontero was leaving on the jet, and we know all the you know the the dialogue and stuff. But I'm more interested, and I think people listening would be more interested in kind of how that came about. Um, how it turned out that you had some DEA agents go to the, to the airport, um, and, and again, more of the background as opposed to kind of, you know, the, the hyperbole of what, what actually happened. Well, I, whenever,
1: whenever I gave the news to DEA headquarters and, uh, that Kiko was missing, I gave it to Mexico I didn't I gave it to to, to Mexico City, they in turn talked to DEA headquarters. And then I got a couple of false calls from DEA headquarters. But they started sending people immediately. And so did so did Mexico City. So that all during the all during the, the evening, late evening, evening of the eighth, and all during the night of the ninth and early morning of the ninth, people began to arrive. The Mexican commandante in charge of the search arrived late on the ninth and slept in until almost noon. And then we all met together in the MFJP offices there in Guadalajara. So that I guess I guess if I recall correctly, it was probably in the early afternoon that we were actually standing outside talking, and uh, we get a phone call, a radio call. I'm sorry, radio call from the DA office saying that they had intercepted a radio message on our little. Uh, Radio Shack Scanner saying the gist of which was that Miguel Felix was headed for the airport and for somebody to take him some money because he was leaving town. So I passed that information along to to the commandant in charge of the search there, Juan Reyes. And uh, he decided that they would go to the airport and try to intercept Miguel Felix before he could leave. And I pointed out, uh, I I believe three different DEA agents told him to accompany the Mexicans. And uh, the Mexicans left. They, I don't recall how many went. It wasn't very many because they were usually for the most part, using rent cars that the DA just had had, uh, rented for them. So there couldn't have been very many, since those were not really big cars. And they headed for the airport. When they arrived at the airport, instead of of encountering Miguel Felix leaving, they encountered a Falcon jet, and it uh, was leaving a hangar near Miguel Felix's hangar they, for some reason, confronted the group of people that were accompanying that that aircraft, I suppose because they were all armed. And uh, Pablo Andreas talked to them, and he talked to the person who was the obviously in charge of the Falcon jet. He, that, that person... Presented some uh, some credentials, and some of the people in the in the uh, armed group were known uh, to to Reyes and others because they were ex MFP agents. Um, when when the.
0: Uh... When the DEA agents who were at the the airport and Pavone Reyes let the, comes out and says, "Hey, he had DFS credentials." The plane takes off. DEA agents come back. Um, what did they tell you as far as kind of who the person was or who was in the the, the Falcon jet?
1: That's not the way it occurred. As we okay. were, as we were. I was at the DEA. I was at the DEA office when the when the confrontation took place. Edward Heath was at the MFJP office. He had a handy talkie, a DEA handy talkie. One of the agents, Ralph Viruel, comes on the radio and says, "A." he more or less said we had to, we had a confrontation here but there's one guy got in in a falcon jet or he got in a, yes he know did he did he said a falcon jet and they are leaving and uh, he either gave the in number the number on the aircraft or I asked him and he gave it and I said that is a falcon that is a new falcon jet that is used by Rafael Cotto, at which time he he jumped on the radio, or, or used the radio, talked on the radio, and he said, stop that jet. But uh, Ralph answered back and said, no, it's too late, it's already leaving. We did not have, we absolutely did not have a photograph of Rafael Cano Contender. We didn't have one. DEA headquarters did not have one in Mexico City. DEA did not have one, so we did not know who 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 it was until we, until Reyes returned from the consulate from the airport. And we all met, and then it uh, was determined that that's uh, one of one of the MFJP agents who had co- accompanied by Reyes Said that it was Rafael Caro. Andreas said he didn't know that, that he didn't know him, and that was not the credentials that he, that he was shown. That particular J.P. agent stated that, that uh, Pablo, that uh, Rafael Caro had given Andreas or had told him that he was going to give him, going to bribe him, but. No DA agent heard
0: that conversation. Okay. the The plane, that Falcon jet. Did you know who, or at any point, did you find out or know who owned that? Even if it had been being used by Carl Quintero, do you know who who owned it? Oh yes, we, we
1: we knew we knew who owned it. We knew most of the aircraft that the traffickers. The lot of traffic was used at that period of time, so we knew it, 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 it belonged to the Cordero Stolpert family that uh, Rafael Caro used it. The Cordero Stolpert family owned uh, the Ford agency, Country Ford, where Rafael Caro had purchased a lot of vehicles. They were, they, were, they, they, they appeared to be money launderers
0: for Rafael Caro. Um, but it was not owned by the company known as Setco, right? No, it was not. Okay. Um, before we turn this into too long, I, I want to talk about two last things. Um, the most important of which is the the recordings, and um, and you and I've had separate conversations about this and so I'm going to let you do the vast majority of the talking here so I don't misstate but one of the more unusual I think elements to the the kidnapping um and interrogation of agent Comarino was the fact that it was recorded and I'm wondering if you could just explain to to us um, how you came to find out uh, that there were recordings and that there were um, copies of those recordings on, uh, you know, there were tapes of, that recorded the original recordings. There, a, there Operation
1: Leenda was created Originally, with three three different uh, investigators, and it, it was uh, they were all stationed in headquarters. The lead agent was a guy named is a guy, was a guy named Bill Kuntz. He's still alive. Bill Koontz came down to Guadalajara, accompanying two FBI forensic specialists to look at the house at Eddie Juan de Vega. And he happened to be in the DA office of Guadalajara that day. It was like it was just a couple of days after Fonseca had been arrested in Puerto Vallarta. And I received a call from Walter White, the deputy uh, is the assistant concienteche. And he told me that the CIA had a source within the Mexican government, he may have said Mexican military, who told them that he had been interrogated and the the interrogation recorded and that he had heard a portion of the recording. And uh, Walter told me a couple of little things in there. He said that... uh, that he had been asked that in the re, that in the, the recording he had been asked if he knew a person named Jesus Ramirez, and uh, I told Walter that that was the name of of a of a assumed name of a confidential informant in our office, and that uh, it was the only name that Kiki knew for the. Competition informed because the informed it did not work for Kiki. Kiki had met him. And that based on that, that I felt like that, uh, that the information about the recording must be correct. Then Walter asked if I would come on down to Mexico City and we would talk to the CIA and get the whole story from them, what they knew. And so I did that night. Wilkoons and I flew to Mexico City. The next morning, I went to the to the embassy, Walter White, and I went up to the CIA office and talked to someone there. I do not remember his name, and he told us that. He he repeated the information that Walter had told me, and he uh, plus a little more. uh, He said that's all he knew. Uh. Coincidentally, the direct, the administrator of DEA had arrived in uh, Mexico City the day before, accompanied by a man from the State Department. So I went with Walter downstairs and told the administrator of DEA and Stephen Trott, the State Department person, and w- Edward Heath, the, the EA SAC of what I had learned at the CIA and that and my belief that it was true based on what I'd been told. They had a meeting that day, scheduled that day with the Mexican Attorney General and they said they would take they would bring up the matter during the meeting, which they did. The Attorney General told them he knew nothing about it, but he would Investigate, and if true, he would call them. And uh, there again, that is what happened. They returned to the to the embassy, and they, in a short period of time, they received a phone call from the Me- Mexican Attorney General, who said that in fact it was true, and that if they would return, he would let them listen. And so they did that. The uh, They went back, listened to the to the to the to these, uh, recordings, and in fact, they recorded it. A portion of it, and re- when they returned, they played the recording. I told them that yes, it was Kiki's voice, and uh, they left it at that. I'm sorry, a few days later, Edward Heath received a phone call from the Attorney General's office. And when he went over there, they allowed him to listen to several recordings. I think he said he actually listened to several tapes. Um, And we tried to get copies. They did not give us copies. They kept. They they said it was embarrassing to the government to, to their government to to uh, admit admit that the recordings had been done, so we were not able to get copies. But we kept on trying and kept on trying, and eventually, Walter White was summoned to the Attorney General's office. He went over someone, and I and I do not know who gave it who it was, gave five cassette tapes to Walter. The cassette tapes were marked Copia 1, Copia 2, Copia 3, Copia 4, Copia 5. Walter put them in a DEA evidence envelope and sealed it. My secretary happened to be in Guadalajara in, in Mexico City at that time, some on some administrative matter, and he gave them to her. She flew back to Guadalajara, gave the tapes to me, and the next day I flew to Washington D.C., and gave the tapes to Matty Moore, who was one of the agents assigned to Operation Leenda
0: and he made copies. Um. And thanks that that I mean that, as always, it's so much more complex than um, a lot of us on the outside realize. You know, there's. There's this phrase that gets tossed around a lot about missing tapes, um, and, and I'm wondering if you could just speak to that concept of missing tapes or elements of the the initial recordings that aren't on those cassettes that those five copies that you you received.
1: Well, we always commonly refer to the recordings as the the tapes, but actually it. Who knows it was if it, if it was how many tapes there were it was recorded. And obviously the entire the entire session the interrogation that was recorded has been doctored uh, that pieces are missing. The, the CIA turned over a transcript of a portion of the recording. Which does not appear on on any of the so-called tapes that we read that we received. We received five tapes. Two of them are portions of recording, portions of the recorded interrogation. There's pieces missing. It's very obvious that there's pieces missing, and a part and the CIA, so-called CIA transcript is not on those tapes uh one of the one of the tapes is is a copy of one of the others what we call copia 4 uh it, it is a copy of copia 4 but it is so faint that you can hardly hear it and it took a long time for, and lots of lots of uh lots of work to to be able to hear it to the point that it that in fact, it is just a copy of the other one, the other tape. So four one tape, is a copy of two, right? A copy of four. It is a copy of four. Two is not copied. Okay. I believe I believe that's correct. Uh, then there is one of the tapes is uh, radio is radio. Uh, Communications from our office. You can hear my voice on there. You can hear Alan Bachelier's voice on there. It's very short, and you can hear a baby fussing. So obviously the the recorder was left on, and uh, to 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 hear whatever we were saying. And it's short. It didn't. It's uh, maybe half an hour at the most and the last tape is the is a the interrogation of a man that we know is that we knew as Juan Brito and he was actually a an MFJP agent I mean it's DFS agent uh, s- stationed in Zacatecas during the period of time that we were working that case up there. And then he got transferred to, uh, to Durango. And he, and the opposite side of that tape, it's his, it's his girlfriend. And she was interrogated. What is interesting about Juan Rito is that sometime before the interrogation, before the interrogation took place, he had apparently been stationed in, uh, Mexico and made friends and became a source of information, if not an informant of of a Border Patrol agent there who then became an FBI agent. And that FBI agent had reached out to him and he had traveled to what is Mexico and across the river to El Paso, Texas. I do not know uh, with what kind of documents and met with the his old friend, his old water patrol friend, and several other FBI agents. A DEA agent from, from Mexico City was invited to go up and was allowed to listen to two days. And he was interrogated, questioned by the U.S. agents and returned to, his office, to, to where he was stationed in Durango, What's really interesting is that during the period of time that he was talking to them, the Mexican, the Mexican officials or somebody in Mexico, some of the bad guys, or maybe even the DFS agents, had him under surveillance. They knew he was meeting with the American agents. They watched him during that entire period of time, identified the American agents, and... uh, when they interrogated him, they asked him about all of that. So the it, it, it appears that when Kiki was interrogated, he told him about the name of a the assumed name of a man who helped us in Zacatecas. His assumed name was Juan. And Juan Rico, I think that the Mexicans uh. thought he was the informant and started following him. He had not been the informant, but actually was an informant for someone else. And that the their surveillance of him actually led to his uh interrogation and and I'm sure death because he'd never been seen since
0: uh I wanna ask just a couple of quick questions about the tapes and from your opportunities to listen to some of or all of the tapes um, and the, the recordings, just a couple of quick questions. Um, was there any communication, in, in, in any conversations that were in English? No. Um. Did any were any of the interrogators? Did any of them have um, a, a unique accent, and, and specifically um, a Cuban accent that you're aware of?
1: the the uh, the recordings were probably done. By, by playing playing by by recording them from the from from whatever the source was, rather than 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 uh, than through a wire connection, so because the quality of the sound is not very good. It's really hard to pick up identifying things, but there is no there no actually there's no. There's no, there's no there are no major accents there, and there's certainly no Caribbean accent or Cuban accent. they' all sound kind of like mexicans
0: um, and and as you say that so also I would assume um, that if there were if there were americans uh, you know, spanish speaking Americans that that accent would generally not always but generally you would be able to tell that there was a difference
1: uh, they whether or not the people that are interrogating speak english or not there there little doubt with that they were mexicans
0: okay that's that's all i was yeah um and and, and i'll note you know i i have heard portions of of tapes as as people know from from the trials, um, but I've also read transcripts and it's I I can't imagine trying to transcribe these because it, especially in various points it seems like there's two or three or more people talking at at the same time and it has to be very hard to to understand especially when it's a copy of a copy so to speak.
1: Well, I have listened to them. Many times, and uh, almost, almost any time you listen to them, you, you pick up something you didn't hear before if you listen close enough. And, and a lot of, some of the early transcripts were wrong. It had to be uh, corrected. The, 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 the quality of the recordings is really bad, especially uh, Copia 4. And the, it it is, it goes you, to too, just from the from the 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 way in which Kiki answers the thing. It sounds like it's if it's not the first one, it's very near the first because he sounds doesn't sound as weak uh, at that period in time. Whereas later on, it it the it you can see that he that he's very tired
0: and am I correct too if you if you go back to like copia two um it seems that the interrogator or the primary interrogator early on was a little more um polished methodical whatever the right word might be um especially as opposed to some of the later ones where it's a little more Disjointed. There's not really an interrogation as much as it's, um, you know, kind of attacking him. Is, is that generally how how you, you rec- or how you perceive the tapes? I, I even I even feel like that
1: Kiki might have known the first interrogator because he's almost. Uh, and the first interrogator was, if not polite, uh, at, at least not demanding. And and uh, and when the, and when Kiki calls him comandante, it's it's not as if uh, it's almost as if he knows him. I mean, that's kind of hard. That's just that's just a personal thing. But
0: okay, um, again, um, wanting to to not. Take this too long. I wanted to ask two last questions. Um, When the United States government had their trials, and there's been three principal trials. There was the the first one with Renee Verdugo and and a few others, and then there's the two that we call that I refer to as the two Zuno trials. So there was the first. Zuno trial in uh, 1990, which included uh, Mata Ballesteros and and others. And then there was the second Zuno trial that involved uh, Dr. Humberto Alvarez-Machine. You worked with, at least in some respects, the prosecution on the first Zuno trial, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: And... Without going into a lot of detail, there's been an, you know, there's been an, an, an allegation that you somehow gave testimony that favored, um, Ruben Zuno Arce. And, and, um, just by way of background, Ruben Zuno Arce had at one point owned 881 Lope de Vega, um, and, and. We won't get into the details of when and if he sold it and how. But at one point, he had owned the house. He also was the brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico, uh, Luisa Uh I was on, you know, in full disclosure, I represented or was one part of a team. I was, I was the junior, junior, junior member of a team representing uh, Mr. Zuno. I was in the courtroom when you testified that day. Uh, but there's been an allegation that you're, you testified for or on behalf of Ruben Zuno, and I'm wondering if you could just respond to that characterization.
1: Well, I testified as a government witness about what I knew uh, in the first trials, Well, in both trials, I mean, and then... Uh, but when I testimony was not about Ruben Zuno, it was about what I knew about the whole uh camar- Camarina uh, about Kiki's time in, Kik- in in Ecuador when I was there. And I testified the, about I testified about my interview with uh, Ruben Zuno concerning his ownership of the house at Eddie Juan the Vega and I testified about uh, a little incident that we had had in uh, 1982 uh, where where an allegation was made about Ruben Zuno but uh, I was not a, a government employee or a government agent. I was not a part of operation Lee and I never was, and I knew nothing more about the government's case than what I than what I have just said. The government did not include me in their case. They didn't tell me what information they had. Of, I was not a
0: part of of, of their investigation. But again, just for clarity, when you testified and gave, you were cross-examined by Zuno's uh, attorneys. During that time, you weren't thinking that you were helping out Ruben Zuno, did you?
1: No, uh, oh. well, I certainly did not. I
0: probably felt that I was uh,
1: not helping him.
0: Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. And then I've got one last question um, before we kind of wrap up. And that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something as, as investigators you probably don't like to do, um, which is to speculate a little bit. But there's been, as you know, um, you know, more than one hypothesis about who picked up uh, or who ordered Agent Camarena to be uh, abducted and why. And I'm just wondering if, you know, if if you – when you sit down and, and reflect on things, if you had to say who you think was responsible for uh, the abduction, does – Do you you have one person that that you think is most likely responsible and a reason or are you still an investigator at heart and at this point we still really don't know?
1: Everybody 90% of all of the people that probably were involved, worked for Ernesto Bocheca. Very few of them, a few of them, were more closely associated with Rafael Caro. But, Rafael Caro is Ernesto Bocheca's nephew. And they were very close. Rafael Caro does, at a certain period of time, purchase the house didn't even in any one for the Vega. As an investigator, I would have to say that I really don't know, but if I'm going to speculate, I would say those, those two. Which one was the, was the more likely? I don't know which one. Was Miguel Felix not involved? That's hard to... That's really tough, because for one thing, he abandoned his office in Guadalajara, on the 7th, as if he knew it was coming. So I really don't know. I mean, speculation, it it, it always has to be those three dudes, but now whether or not they were all that stupid, I I really don't know. I, I honestly don't know.
0: I, I appreciate that and I appreciate the candor. Um, this has been a treat for me, um, and I really appreciate it. I hope that um, that everybody listening uh, appreciates it as much as I have. Before I let you go, I want I want to do a plug. Um, if you If you're interested in this case, if you haven't looked into everything, uh if you want to know way more details. There's some great stuff about people we've barely talked about, you know, Thomas Morlett and others. But get Agent Kirkendall's book, uh Silver or Lead O Plata O, 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 o Plomo. Um you can get it on Amazon. It's great. Um and and I think you know, again, anybody with an interest in, in the case, um would benefit by reading it because there's there's stuff in here you're not going to find any place else. Uh, and with that, Jaime, I appreciate your time. Um, I appreciate everything that you've done uh, in support of uh, Agent Camarena's legacy, and on behalf of everybody who will listen to this podcast, uh, I, I thank you.
1: Thank you very much, and thanks for the. Uh, promoting a little book, that I think memoir. It's not a book, it's a memoir. So thank you very much. And and uh I I uh I, I I agree with what you said. That's the best way to find
0: something out. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you everybody and uh next week we will be back with an, another podcast. I doubt that um we'll have as interesting a guest next week, but stay tuned and see what it is. All right, we're done. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you very much. When are you you going to Miami?